Hello again, you're listening to Women in Newix. If you've ever made a promise to yourself to be open to new experiences, if you've ever frustratingly admitted, I need to try new things, if your mantra has ever been, my future is in my hands, then this is a conversation you'll want to hear. I'm Dana Feeney, part of the Newix team, and on this episode, I'm talking with Maeve O'Connell, the head of partner programs and operations here at Newix. We're chatting about her rich and varied experiences in education, work, and the stops in between. We're discussing her time within the partners organization, her objectives in collaborating with a life and career coach, and how she's learned to break out of the boxes and roles many of us find ourselves in, as good students, as conscientious employees, as women. Maeve is a study in taking smart chances, following her own path to the most interesting places, and fearlessly questioning everything. Thanks for joining us. And now, on to the show. Maeve, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the podcast. It is so wonderful to um, finally have you on. We've had many discussions um, about you being on the show, and so it's truly great to have you here. Thanks, Tina. I'm delighted to finally get to do this. Um, and so we've been colleagues at Newix, albeit on uh, sort of not totally different sides of the world, but um, uh, for, uh, let's see, how long have you been with Newix? I've been here, I actually remember my specific starting date, if you believe that. So I started the 13th of October, 2014. So it's about six and a half years coming up to seven years this October. That's, I think I started just about a month before you. So yeah, we've been working in the same circles or similar circles or, you know, sometimes concentric circles for a a long time. And so can you kind of explain or give us, you know, what's your title, what's your role here at Newix? How would you, how would you explain your day-to-day job? Yeah. So I guess my, my official title is head of partner programs and operations. Um, So I suppose just a bit of history. I wasn't always in this role, so I didn't start off with this job. Um, Six years ago, I actually started as business analyst. Um, and after probably about a year, 18 months, I kind of moved into the, what I would call the partner organization side of the business. Um, so I've been really working there for the last probably five years or so. And this specific role is new to me. So it's, I've been in it for about three or four months now, I think since March. Um, I suppose in terms of like the role itself, how I would describe it at a very high level, I always kind of say is to provide like the structure by which we manage our partners, both internally and externally. So, you know, what are the processes internally that we use to kind of figure out how we deal with our partners, but also externally, you know, how do our partners work with us? Mm. Um, specifically, I suppose, I mean, I would be in charge of, in charge of, maybe the wrong word, but I look after um, any systems that the partners work with. So we have, couple of partner specific systems but also the interaction with the other systems that they work with and how those systems all interact together um and there's a fairly broad remit across the business in terms of like other things I look after so we have partner specific programs so for example the dear registration program so anyone who's familiar with working with partners will probably know what that is but also the different processes that kind of intersect the different parts of the business as well I'd be really heavily involved in those things too so anything from you know working with the finance team to the legal team or I work very closely with the sales and commercial teams as well. Um, 
so yeah I guess that's just kind of an overview of my job in terms of the area I work in I suppose it's a really interesting area to work in you know there's a lot of change at the moment probably similar to other areas in the software business um I think in particular the the channel partner area is an interesting one because people are still figuring out you know what the best way to work with partner is or how you would approach in terms of I suppose even a methodology of how you work with partners and how you build out a program and build out partner channels um I've heard some people talk about it in terms of you know comparing it to something like sales or marketing methodology which have far more set approaches and like you can even learn how to do those things kind of in university um but with partners it's still kind of in that early phase where we're still trying to figure out how to I'll use the word operationalize um how we work with our partners yeah so it's it's um it's a very interesting area to be in I think uh probably not one that I thought I would be in 20 years ago how much of that you know kind of making up that blazing that path um, coming up with those processes and those workflows. Do you, do you enjoy that? Is that something, you know, where, like you said, you can't necessarily go to school to learn how to, um, build and run a, a partner program. Is that something that you enjoy doing? Yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoy doing it. It's, it can be very, um, bespoke again, depending on companies. So, like how a company wants to approach their partner channel really depends on what customers they're working with and how those customers like to buy, right? So um, just because a program will work in one company or might work at Newix doesn't necessarily mean that it will work for a different company. Um, so I think there's always kind of that sense of like creating something new when you're building out a program because it isn't really that possible to take a template and just apply it exactly vendor by vendor. I think there is a there is an approach that I think that you could take when building out a program, but the actual program itself, the details of the program are always going to be different company by company, depending on what that company does. And I think, and we can go into this, you are uh, exceptionally suited to doing kind of that bespoke work and not being able to see necessarily the path in front of you and and creating it yourself. And so I guess from there, I'd, I'd like to ask um, you, you were in university when you got your um, degree, like, what did that look like? Did you, um, did you think, what did you think you would be doing at the outset? And um, what twists and turns did your path take from there? Because I think it's a really, this is just exceptionally interesting to me. Yeah, so I, I went to university and I studied electrical and electronic engineering. And probably at the time when I chose to do that, it's based on the subjects that I enjoyed doing in school. So I was always really into maths and science subjects. Um, and I felt like that was something that I was good at. And it's probably different, I suppose, depending on, you know, when you are when you live in a different country, your route to university is slightly different. But um, in Ireland, uh, the route to university really is through your exams, right? So if you do well in specific subjects or do well overall, it just there isn't anything else taken into consideration for your university um, course. So that was, it was a fairly, it was a fairly easy decision, I think, for me to go into that area. But things that I didn't really take into consideration at the time were kind of how I wanted to work and where I wanted to work and like the, what kind of company I wanted to work for or anything like that. It was really just making my decision based on subjects. 
so that's kind of something that I think about now. You know, I often ask me and my friends who did the, the, the same course, we often ask ourselves, uh, if you were going back 20 years now and you were to choose, would you choose the same thing again? And actually, interestingly, a lot of us say, no, we wouldn't, um, because we have obviously had different life experiences that would force our choice in one way or the other. So after I finished my degree, I worked in engineering for a few years. And then I guess the travel bug hit and I was kind of in my mid-20s and I decided that I wanted to see a bit of the world. Um, and I applied for the JEC program, which is a program which is run by the Japanese government through various embassies in English speaking countries. And it's it's how they recruit uh, people who speak English as a native language to become English teachers in Japan. Um, but it's also kind of a cultural exchange. Uh, I think the program's been running probably, I think it was about 25 years when I was there, so maybe about 35 years now. So I, I had known somebody who had done that program, so I applied to do it. Um, there wasn't any particular affinity towards Japan in any way, but uh, you know, obviously I was open to going. So I applied and I, I got it and I spent three years, three years working in Japan uh, teaching English. Um, obviously it's very different to what I'd done before and very far away from, from my home in Ireland. But uh, I made a lot of friends who I still have now and still keep in touch with and that has kind of influenced my, how I live my personal life in some way, I guess. Um, you know, having those friends internationally and traveling to meet them and, and, and holiday with them when we can. Um, but also, I guess you kind of just, op it opens up your mind a little bit more towards um, the concept of, you know, working internationally and working with different cultures and the approaches different people might take towards different, I guess, different topics or just different issues. Or I can imagine it has to influence so much of of how you think, like you said, working a, a, for an international organization now at Nuix, um, but in, and how your relationships are formed in your personal life, and then just also, yeah, how you uh, how you see the the world, and um, it's what an incredible experience to be able to do that. And so, did you move back home again after that? Back home to Ireland after that? Yeah, so I moved back. Um, I moved back, and I didn't I didn't have any. Uh any plan when I came back and <laughs> um, I think my time in Japan had naturally ended uh, so that felt like the right thing to do at the time um, and within a few months I, I got a job as a business analyst for Amazon mm. so they have quite a big presence in Ireland um, mm. and I worked there for I was there for about three years um, working as a business analyst and doing a couple of other things as well I wanted to I didn't necessarily want to go back to engineering I wanted to move on from Amazon, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I thought it would be a good idea to go back to college. So I went back um, and, and, and got a master's in uh, business and IT. Um, so that was a year long master's uh, full year. So that was kind of theoretical, but also very hands on, very practical. Mm. Um, and at the end of that master's, we did an industry based project, which I ended up actually doing with Nuix, coincidentally mm. enough. Um, and that's how I found myself here. I well, I guess my my next question is: so you found yourself at at Newix as part of um, a structured graduate program. Were you offered a job here, or how did that come about? Was that was it a position that was available, or can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, so I wasn't offered a job straight out. There wasn't any position advertised, but I remember thinking at the time there isn't any 
you know, there isn't any reason why I wouldn't ask if there was a job. Yeah. Um, so I did. And as it turns out, they were thinking about bringing on somebody in that kind of business analysis role. Uh, I guess there was a crossover. I mean, between my master's at the time, obviously kind of business and IT, and I've done some business analysis as well uh, when I was working in Amazon. Um, so there was a fit there, I think. It was kind of serendipitous in a way, I suppose, that I happened to reach out at the time where they were thinking about bringing somebody on. So there was, I guess, a bit of luck, but also, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, which is one of my mantras in life. Right. That's what I, um, that's what I'm hearing, right? Like you, it is, it is serendipitous and it's a happy coincidence, but you asked for it as well. You actually took the, um, that initiative and just, uh, you know, kind of went for it because I guess, you know, the worst that anyone can say is no. And that's, Probably something that's important for all of us to to just remember when we're fearing, you know, rejection. Um, do you feel like so? You talked about um, your initial, your undergrad schooling, your work in um, teaching in Japan, um, your work at Amazon, getting your graduate degree, working with Nuix, um, and so that brings us up almost to present day. Do you feel like there was a kind of an inflection point in? you know, in, in your schooling or in your formative career experiences where you said, you know, this is, I'm, I'm kind of finding this path. I'm, I feel like I'm narrowing what my interests are or was there, was it just kind of, did that point exist for you? Um, I don't have any light bulb moment where, you know, something just clicked in my mind and I said, oh, this is what I need to do. Um, I think as the older I'm getting the more deliberate I probably am in my choices and what directions I go in. Um, I guess I mentioned, you know, the reasons I went into university and studied, you know, what I did were fairly one dimensional. Um, but now I think I'd probably apply in terms of decision making, I probably apply a few different lenses on any decision I'm going to make. So I would say, I would say that's almost the opposite. Is it? I mean, you're kind of going into making decisions based on one thing to, making your decisions based on a few different things. But I suppose I'm definitely becoming more deliberate in in how I figure out or, you know, sort through where I want to go or what I want to do. And I I think as well, like the older you get, the, the more you get to know yourself, right? So you kind of know how you like to work and the way you like to work. And sometimes that's not always how people might have perceived you when you were younger. Um, you know, they might have put you in a little box and you kind of think you belong in that box. And then when you get a bit older, you're like, oh, actually, no, <laughs> you know, I don't. There's, uh, there's other things there's other things that I can do that I maybe I thought I couldn't do. So That's right. That's yeah. right. And sometimes, you know, when people, you know that there's that perception and there's people putting you in that box, it's also really easy to keep yourself in that box and say, okay, well, this is just who I am. Um, but it's a, it's a testament to, to who you are that you can kind of say, I, I'm, I'm growing and changing. And not only that, but that there doesn't have to be, you know, I'm talking about inflection points, but there doesn't have to be, there's not, there doesn't have to be that epiphany moment. It can be an iterative. And in fact, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what personal growth is, right? It's, it's just iterative change and um, becoming comfortable with the person that you're becoming and not, and not uh, confining yourself based on who you think you should be or who others think you should be. So I think that's it's a really important um, thing to to remember as well. Like just I suppose just to add to that, like hindsight is obviously a wonderful thing, right? So if I was to look back on decisions I've made, we 
you know, I might be able to attribute some kind of logic to them, but I don't think I was probably thinking about that at the time, you know. Um, so it's always I, it's always interesting to think back um, on your life and think about like the different ways or the different paths you might go down and how that might throw you into different other different paths. And uh, you know, sometimes those things don't bear don't bear thinking about really because you never really know it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't bear thinking about as you near milestone birthdays as we talked about before <laughs> <Yeah. the morning. laughs> <laughs> it's that that 20 year would you go back and and redo it but it doesn't I mean it sounds to me and you know correct me but it sounds like you're maybe if you could go back and examine how you made those choices maybe you would but you're not necessarily you know um, regretting or second guessing the experiences that you've had and the paths that you've chosen within those no not at all I mean you know it's always good to go back with your 20 years experience and say you'd make a different decision but you know, 39-year-old Maeve is very different to 19-year-old Maeve, so you probably still would have seen the same. So I, I, would have, I, I can't see how I would have made a different decision when I was that age, um, knowing what I knew then versus knowing what I know right. So, I guess on that topic, you know, I think there's conventional conventional thinking, um, and it's, it's starting to change with, I think, generationally, and as we see, you know, the fluidity of both education and, um, and career paths, but there is still that thinking that uh, experience counts when it's in a specific, when it's in a common vein, you know, when it follows a, a, a specific trajectory. Um, did you ever feel pressure to stick with self-imposed or otherwise, you know, like in that, that box mentality of like, w- w- I, I should go with this thing, or I should go with that thing, or I should continue teaching, or I, you know, should follow my, um, you know, my graduate degree. Did you ever feel pressure to just, you know, kind of follow one thing and see where it led versus just being open to different experiences? Um, I think I, I never really felt like there was any outside influences influencing kind of where I've gone with my education or my, my career. I guess like for some people, maybe they're parents would have been influencing them but I don't really ever feel like my parents were you know other than making sure that you know I was education is very important to them so you know making sure that I was pursuing like that route of going to university and you know setting myself up for you know a job and thinking about careers and things like that they they weren't really that fussed in what direction I was taking like from a subject matter point of view I think like the older I get the if we're talking about like self-imposed limitations, I probably realize that maybe things that people might have seen me as being very good at doing, maybe I don't actually like doing them that much Mm. and trying to figure out what it is I like about work that I'm interested in a lot of different subjects. So I think there's probably loads of different jobs that I could do that I would enjoy and find interesting. And the one I'm in now is definitely one of them. But I think in terms of figuring out like how I want to work and not really limiting myself to to what people might have perceived that of when I was younger, because I will, I was always good at school and I think people always just saw me as kind of the detail-oriented, kind of smart person who would just figure things out. But I actually really enjoy parts of my job now that I probably wouldn't have thought I would when I was that younger. I really enjoy working with people and being in an area where there's still a lot of ambiguity and you know being able to kind of gather ideas and concepts and talk about them but also being able to put a bit more of an order on those things 
that's very different to, to how I would have studied at school and at university. But that's a really crucial distinction to make that what you might enjoy doing and what you're good at doing or what others think you're good at doing or what your obvious strengths are could be, you can be either A, good at a lot of things, or you can, you know, by you, I mean, just the, you know, a people can be good at a variety of things or, um, you know, put in their, their, their 10,000 hours and, you know, you can, you can get better at the things that you enjoy. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, okay, well, I'm good at, I'm a, like, to your point, a good student. And so, you know, this is how, um, this is the, the path that I should follow, but it's a courageous thing to be able to say, like, it's, I don't necessarily have to do this thing. That's kind of academically uh, oriented or it looks good on paper. It can also just be, you know, I can just follow the things that I'm also interested in and acknowledge that there are many parts and many, like many um, facets to, to who I am. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that I've enjoyed with working with Unix the last few years is always kind of figuring that stuff out as well, because it's the kind of organization I think there, there's a lot of freedom to be able to do that. Um, because there's a lot of different things that, especially working with partners as well, like you're, you know, across a lot of different parts of the organization. So you're, you're always learning. You always feel like the person who doesn't know the most in the room because you're always in a room with marketing people who know loads about marketing or, you know, in a room with salespeople and they know everything about sales. So it, you know, uh, I treat all of that stuff as a learning experience as well. Um, but as well, things like, you know, learning about leadership, you know, that's been really interesting for me for the last year or so. And what makes a good leader and like being able to see that stuff being put into practice as well because you do see it and you do see it every day um you know working you know working in any job any business any company um you know you can see how people are effective and how they aren't effective and those are things that you don't really learn in in school or university so that's right mm-hmm. that's right what is your view of leadership i mean you i i know that you look after the um partners program and the operational side, you know, the, the um, tools that you're using, but you are, you're a leader of the program. Um, and so as you're learning about leadership and you take this, you know, you mentioned the past year kind of exploring more about what it means to be in leadership and um, what does that leadership look like for a program like partners where there is no, like you said the before, there's no there's no blueprint, there's no um, specific, you know, or, or formulaic process to follow. And what does leadership look like versus influence versus um, guidance versus, you know, and how are you interacting with other parts of the business? Yeah, I guess um, one of the things about the partner program is that we, as a partner team, we don't have a particularly large organization so we don't have a lot there isn't a lot of direct reports and we don't have a big team to look after what is like quite a large part of the business so um a lot of what we do is working and engaging with other parts of the business to i guess bring them on board to the the, what the vision is for partners and the partnerships but also communicating i suppose in a way like how we need to go about that um i think one of the things that I found at Newix, you know, as the last few years working with partners is that, you know, with, with partners, there's so many different 
parts of working with partners. So you can have all kinds of job titles, partner marketing, partner sales, partner management, partner programs, partner operations, it's all different types of business, um, different types of people and different parts of the business, I suppose, that are needed. And trying to break that stuff out and communicate that to the business as, as a whole is, is kind of part of part of what I do, because I think sometimes people kind of think partners, one bucket will all stick it in one bucket, but actually it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of permeating all parts of the business. So I suppose leadership in that respect is, you know, trying to open up that view to the business as well. Um, and it's, it's, I would say this sounds a little manipulative, but like, you know, the idea of influence isn't the same as manipulation. So, you know, trying to get people on board to, um, to kind of get behind particular initiatives in terms of partnerships as well. So, but like really getting them on board, you know, not, not because they're told to do it, but because they want to do it or because they see the value in it. I think that's kind of what leadership is, is for me, you know, definitely in the last year, a couple of years. And I guess as you've seen and experienced and participated in leadership um, over the past couple of few years, um, one of the things that we talked about as we were preparing was that notion of unconscious bias, which is, you know, um, that, that was kind of what came up as we were, as we were talking and, and planning out. So, you know, organizationally, like that's going to start at the, that's going to start at the top. Do you feel like there's a way to kind of sh- shift the, or what, what ways can leaders and, and, you know, um, influence other parts of the business and influence other leaders to kind of move away from that, um, the, the, the unconscious bias. And again, I mean, it's, it's challenging. Unconscious bias is really challenging because it's, as the name implies, it's not something that we're, we're thinking about we're we're, you know, totally even aware of, but are there ways in your life um, as a leader and just as a, as a human being, we're interacting with other human beings that um, you've found are effective ways to like combat that or be aware of it or. It's a, it's a really difficult question. I feel like we could probably talk for hours about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think like that people like people who are like themselves, that's a fairly well-known fact, right? And um, you know, you could go into any kind of books on psychology or uh, human behavior or, you know, human economics is so really interesting. I've read a couple of books, so I, I feel like I'm a, a well-versed, but very amateur <laughs> on that topic. Um, I think the first step, I suppose, in, in, in addressing something like that, I mean, the very obvious things, I suppose, is that, you know, in any organization, the, the leaders are generally going to be men. Um, and when they, you know, you often hear people just anecdotally and I, you know, you know, they, they see something in somebody else and then you're beginning to think, well, what exactly do they see? They probably just see someone who's like themselves, mm. you know, and that kind of thinking can be difficult to challenge. So I suppose the first thing that, you know, I would think about is kind of just bringing that, and it can even be theory uh, to, if you're talking in terms of a business, to a business, I guess, you know, to the whole business. Um, all levels you know all all teams just to kind of inform people that you know this does exist this is a thing and you know human beings are not um, the bastion of objectivity that they like to think they are <laughs> uh, unfortunately none of us are uh, but even just being aware of that fact I think can help you 
in how you approach your thinking towards, you know, either how you are treating somebody or how you are behaving. Because um, I think those are two separate things. And for me, it's definitely informed like me on how I want to change my behavior, hmm. which isn't to say that I can affect change across the whole business because I'm just one person and, you know, it's difficult to change people's minds right but if you have more than you know if you if you spread the word in an organization you're going to have people who just don't listen but then you also have people who do listen right so you're making incremental change which I think is important um so you know change how I might approach something or the the manner in which I might approach something as well as the the tactic I suppose but also to have people who would be interacting, um, I'll talk specifically with about me, but you know, with me directly or people above me in businesses, you know, to think about how they might be talking or interacting or thinking about about me as well. Um because people always have a people always have a lens, right? And that lens, I think in terms of I guess what we're talking about here in terms of women, there's always a kind of a, a lens on women in a specific way. So just to to open people's minds to ask questions, I think, is probably one of the most important things um, mm. that we could do as an organization. That's right. That's right. That That's opening people's minds to ask questions and, and just that awareness of what you yourself, what you're doing, I think, is um, what an individual is doing is so important because others can see that they pick up on it. Um, and like you said, some might not, some might ignore it. Some might not listen, but I think if you are, um, as a leader, as someone, um, you know, specifically with a new ex who's been with this organization, if you're setting that, um, example, I think it's really powerful. And, um, one of the things that another thing we talked about as we were um, preparing was that you've, um, recently or within the last year or so have, um, kind of brought a, a coach on board for your, for yourself. Would you mind sharing a little bit? I, th I think that that's some, some of the things that you've, um, you, you go over and some of the things that you're implementing for yourself with your, with your coach, would you mind sharing that here? Yeah. So I started working with a coach, um, probably about a year ago and I don't know, like we said earlier on, I don't know where the year has gone. Um, but there was a couple of things that I wanted to focus on and they probably seem like really general, non-specific things. But the first thing was for me, I wanted to stop being seen as a helper. Um, and I think I was probably falling a bit too much into that trap whereas people would always mm -hmm. see me as somebody who would fix the problem more, mm -hmm. um, I suppose save fair of hands maybe, or like they'll just make sure something gets done. And I think... Mm -hmm. When you're seen as that, it can kind of limit you in a way because, well, when you're seen as like someone who's going to help somebody else, it doesn't necessarily see you as somebody who's going to bring up, bring something forward or come up with new ideas or like mm -hmm. drive a program. Um, so that was one of the things I kind of made a pledge to myself about a year ago that I would stop or try to, to stop doing. Um, and then the other thing was, to not care about being seen as you know not care I suppose not care in, in the sense but not let it affect how I approach situations like to be seen as like you know 
making a mistake or maybe I'm not an expert in a specific situation or ask a stupid question. Um, so not to worry about that because I think if you're, I think I was probably always used to as a, as a younger person going through school at university, well, you know, just always knowing the answer. <laughs> and when you come to obviously working in a company in a professional sense, and the, the more you go on in your career, there's just so much that you can never know, right? So being able to be open to that and being able to ask the questions, um, I think is really important because you're, again, you're kind of limiting yourself if you're not, if you're not open, open to, to, to being seen as making a mistake or not knowing something then you'll never really learn or progress. Um, That's right. I think asking questions is, well, I was going to say you should ask my mother. I used to drive her crazy when I was younger, but um, <laughs> I think asking questions is something that that's actually really important and it's, it's that old you know adage of you know, knowing why you're doing something um, I actually think that's incredibly important and I know it probably is frustrating to some people and I'm like well you know, why why are you asking me to do that but not that I would ever say those words specifically but <laughs> the implied question of why are you asking me to do that um well one because it helps me remember things and also it helps me link things together um so telling me to do something, you know, press that button right? that doesn't give me any context. I don't know why you're asking me to do that, but if you're telling me why, then I can tell you something about maybe we shouldn't be doing it that way or we could do it a different way or. Yeah. And it, and it uncovers, like you said, those inefficiencies that invariably are built into like any team or any process. And when you start to ask those questions, you're uncovering potentially better ways to do things or better ways to, to look at a problem or, but yeah, asking questions and um, all of the things that you mentioned, you know, trying to move away from that helper role, move away from being um, uh, reactive in terms of like, okay, well, I'll just support rather than lead. And then also uh, feeling like you, that pressure to, to know everything, to have the answer right away. I think all of those things feel like they can easily be uh, down to to gender, that women a lot feel like we're in those um, helper roles in um, professional settings, um, or that we are expected, we're put into those, again, put into that that box. Um, and that there's that feeling too, that as a woman, if you're walking into a situation where you need to, to prove your capability, that you're going to try to have those answers over and over again, because it's a sign of weakness if you don't. It's... Um, wonderful to hear that that's something that you're working on like as an individual I think it's something that we can all like take away from um, um, this conversation but also just to know that that's I, something that resonates probably just because of gender and for you know if, if you're a woman thinking about your role in an organization that that's probably come up for all of us at, at one point or another so yeah and I, I think as well the one of the things I'm conscious of is that idea that, you know, as a woman, I still think that we're almost seen as speaking for all women or representative of all women in some way. And that if you're the only woman in the room, then you are therefore representing like 50% of the human race. And you're like, well, no, no, I am a woman. And that has probably shaped how I approach things or how I think about things in other ways. But like, there is many different parts to my personality, right? And I'm a woman, but I'm also Irish. And I'm also not from a city. I grew up in a very small country town. And you know, like all of these different experiences in your life, you know, you're never just one thing, right? So I think that's, it's very important um, 
it's important for me to be seen as myself. You know, I'm not just a, a woman in a room speaking for all women. It's, you know, I am an individual and I have my own ideas and way of thinking. And that's, I think, what having women in the room does because you're accessing 50% of the population that maybe wasn't being utilized up until relatively recently in, in human history, right? And you're accessing 50% of the population, but if you're one-tenth of the population in the room, it's just gross. It's, it's a gross misrepresentation and it's putting, again, it's that burden of needing to fix a problem that you didn't create, you know, where it's foisted upon you. Um, any sort of, I don't know if it's stereotypes or expectations that all women are, are one way or behave one way, or it's, um, it, it's a lot of undue pressure to be that representation and be a small part of who is in at the table. Yeah. And I, I think like one of the things um, I, I think about this topic, like women in, women in business, if you want to call it that, but there's a lot of pigeonholing might be too strong a word, but I think women tend to be pigeonholed in terms of like them existing as a woman and the things that are important to women or the things that, you know, women want when they work. And, um, like two of those things like there is a big focus I think on women as mothers which is which I think is very a very valid thing to discuss because I think it really is really important but you know you know I'm not a mother right so that kind of just doesn't really make any sense to me or not that it doesn't make sense to me but it doesn't apply to me I guess and then the other thing I suppose that people talk about in terms of women is that you know the stereotypical female personality as well so you're the one that's caring and supportive and, you know, open and wants to include everyone. But I don't have a stereotypical female personality either, which isn't to say that I am not capable of doing those things, but I don't think it's how I naturally interact with people. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it can be a bit alienating as well if you're not talking about diversity, I suppose, in terms of like the people as opposed to just it being, you know, a woman and these are the things that women want. And this is how women work. Whereas, in fact, we're just human beings like everyone else, you know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. It's, um, there's that cross section of, okay, well, we want to focus on, you know, being more diverse in, um, in gender and more and, and ethnicity and um, cultural representation um, and ability. But, also recognizing that they're at the individual level, there are a ton of variations as well. So it's, it gets really, yeah, it's, it's complex when you think about it um, as applied to an organization, but it's, you know, it's worth continuing to have those discussions about. And like you said, that, that awareness, um, um, the worst thing that I think leaders can do is, or, or, um, you know, whether a senior leadership or, um, anyone who's making decisions uh, at an organizational level can do is just be in denial about about there being a problem. You know, there's and then that's it's a really simplistic thing to say, but you have to start somewhere, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I agree, and I, I think it's um, you know, it's such a complex issue. There isn't really anyone answer. Uh, just just being aware of it, asking questions and maybe just questioning yourself, I think really is all that we can expect of people. That's right. 
Well, this has been such an amazing conversation, Maeve, and I think some of the things that we touched on are, um, you know, we talked about the notion of not putting people in uh, boxes by ability or by uh, gender or any other sort of um, category, but, you know, looking at someone through the lens of individuality. Um, We talked about, you know, sort of your your path as an inspiration that there's to, you know, to anyone who's thinking of like, do I have to follow um, um, one prescribed way? And I think that your story is kind of proof that no, you don't, you don't have to just kind of go with kind of cheesy to say, go with your heart. But at the same time, I think that you have taken smart risks and they've paid off for you based on, you know, what is, what is right for me at this point um, in my life and at this stage of my journey. So, so I, so thank you again. And um, before we kind of wrap up here, um, we like to ask uh, guests of the podcast, if they have any recommendation, you know, like for, for further reading or education, is there anything that you've read or listened or uh, watched recently that you would like to share um, as something insightful and educational? Yeah, so I, it's a book, I haven't read it recently. It's been a few years since I read it. Um, but when you ask me to recommend a book, this is always the one that pops into my head just because <laughs> I, just because I, I, I I enjoyed it so much. I always like to say um, I like to read books about interesting things other people have done. And this is definitely one that falls <laughs> into that category. Uh, so the name of the book is The Contiki Expedition. And it's written by a guy called Poor Herodal. So it's a true story, based on a true story. It is a true story. Um, he was a Norwegian anthropologist and he had a theory that the ancestry of the South Pacific Islands came from South America. Uh, so what he wanted to do was he wanted to build a boat uh, using techniques and materials that would have been available to people at the time, which would have been um, kind of pre-Columbus time, um, and sail across the Pacific Ocean uh, to prove his theory. So, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil it by saying that he did do it, because it's obviously, you know, 60 or 70 years ago, it's a fairly well-known story. Uh, But the book is just, the book is just all about that. It's, it's a very, I guess it's a very life-affirming book, but it also is kind of full of humor as well. Um, so I guess, like, just to just to, to, to finish off, the first chapter or the first paragraph in the book, I always say, is like <laughs> the, one of the best first paragraphs of any book I've ever read. Um, so I'll just read it out to you. Just occasionally you find yourself in an odd situation. You get into it by degrees and in the most natural way, but when you are right in the midst of it, you're suddenly astonished and ask yourself how in the world it all came about. And that awesome. just, I just, I just really like that. I think it's, uh, it kind of speaks to, speaks to most people's lives, I suppose. If you ever just stop and take stock of, of where you are and you're just thinking, oh, how on earth did I get here? <laughs> I think it, it is more than appropriate for life. It's more than appropriate for this moment that we're finding ourselves in as yeah. like a globe. But um, yeah, that's that's beautiful. And we'll actually include a, a link in our show notes so that anyone um, who's interested can you know get themselves a copy or read a little bit more about it. Yeah, it's a very, <clears throat> it's not actually that easy to get. And I know people who are listening can't really see this, but this copy is about 50 years old. Wow. So maybe uh, it's holding up a, <laughs> a well-loved uh, copy of the book, which is the best kind of book, the book that is, it's, 
you can tell that it's uh, been enjoyed. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it, uh, it belonged to my grandfather and from the looks oh. of it, it's in four and a half pence. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It belonged to your grandfather. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really beautiful. Well, then in that case, we will include a link to more information about the book, but no guarantees that you'll be able to get it. <laughs> well, thank you again um, so much for your time and your wisdom and everything you've shared here today. Well, thanks, Dana. It was really good to talk to you. Thanks very much to our guests on this show. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, share, and give the show a five-star rating. Newick's podcasts are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening.